Is Apple checking your photos in the Finder? A League of Legends hack leaking um, some pretty troubling data. Apple has added security keys. Argentina is requiring biometrics for SIM cards. And Bitwarden is coming under hot fire. And of course, much, much more. Welcome to Surveillance Port 119, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news from the past week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. And I am Henry from TechLore. So this week's promo segment, we're going to do something a little different. First, we do want to remind you guys, there's a Patreon LibrePay and Monero. Go ahead and check those out. Those are great ways to support us. But we have also agreed to team up with Monerotopia to help them promote their upcoming conference. So for those who don't know, Monerotopia is a new conference. Their first event was last year in Miami. This year will be May 6th and 7th with a welcome party slash Cinco de Mayo party on the evening of the 5th. And it will be in Mexico City at an outdoor community center and garden that is run by artists and activists. There's going to be a lot of talks from Monero developers and contributors, other privacy tech projects, cypherpunks, agorists, free speech advocates, all kinds of cool stuff. There's also going to be workshops like Monero 101, how to run your own node, general privacy tech best practices, and internet anonymity. So should be a lot of cool stuff. The notes they sent me, I really wanted to quote this because I like the way they put it. The goal of the conference overall is to network with like-minded freedom seekers who want to participate in building out a true digital cash parallel economy outside of state control. This is not a number go up maxi fest. I love that so By much. the way, like I, I, I really dislike most cryptocurrencies, but I still really enjoy Monero and the community around it because they actually care about like the technology and the privacy. They don't they don't really care about the numbers. Like when you go to these things, like it's really, it's, it's a good environment. Yeah, same. I totally agree. If you follow Seth on, on Twitter, he's always very upfront about these discussions about what can Monero do? What can it not do? Where can it improve? So yeah, I, I really like the Monero. Seth people. will be there too. Also for people. Yeah. Seth will be there. Um, I will be there. Seth will be speaking. Henry will not be there. Unfortunately. Um, I might be speaking. I'm still waiting to hear back on that, but yeah. Tickets are $99 for general admission for all days. If you want VIP tickets, it's $199 for all three days. And they're still accepting submissions for vendors, speakers, volunteers, etc. if you are interested. And we have teamed up with them to give you a 10% off code, no surveillance one. That's the number one, and it's an all lowercase. So no surveillance one. That'll be in the show notes. If you guys are looking to attend a conference and you're looking to, you know, you're in the Mexico City area or can get there. I had a lot of fun last year. I thought it was super cool. It's really cool to network with other people, meet other people. So I think it's going to be a good time. And I mean, just to chime in here. So I went to Monerotopia and uh, Monerocon last year. So I went to two Monero conferences and um, especially Monerotopia was really solid. And um, just the community again was great. And I wish I could go this year. The only reason I'm not going is because like my travel budget this year has to be smaller (laughs) for both myself and the company. So but yeah, if it wasn't for that, I'd love to go. So I feel kind of bummed I can't make it. But either way, like Nate will be there and lots of other privacy advocates will be there. And pretty much like the whole Monero community generally are privacy advocates as well because it's all like privacy-based payment methods. So it's really cool stuff. With that, we will launch into our highlight story. And we're going to start with one that is making the rounds. The headline says, is Apple checking images we view in the Finder? We're sharing the story, especially because we have seen a lot of misconceptions about this go viral. And we kind of want to present the counter argument. A certain researcher published a blog post recently where they claimed that they hooked up their iPhone to their Mac via a cable to transfer photos manually because they don't trust iCloud, which uh, is fair. I'm not going to trash talk that part. That's totally cool. They are running Little Snitch and Little Snitch alerted them while they were transferring to a process called Media Analysis D, which is the Media Analysis Daemon. The user then, I'm going to talk a little trash here, with literally no other information other than 
Apple once presented the idea of CSAM scanning, which is child sexual abuse material for those of you who are just joining us. And then they proceeded to ignore the fact that Apple officially declared that they're not going to go forward with that project, despite linking an article that said that in very plain English. But whatever. With literally zero information, the author of this post then decided that clearly this must be Apple implementing that scanning without telling anyone. That said, the article we're sharing here is another researcher who decided to put this claim to the test. And they laid out very detailed instructions of like, here's what I checked. Here was my setup. Here's everything that I found. They found that Media Analysis D is actually trying to recognize text. It's not trying to do any sort of CSAM scanning and it doesn't even upload anything to Apple's servers. And it can be disabled anyways by disabling Siri suggestions, which note the new oil recommends doing that on our website, you know, disable Siri. So yeah, I think that's kind of all I've got for this story. We're just trying to counteract some sensationalism we've seen going around. Before anyone says it, I'm not necessarily saying that like Macs are the best system or like Apple's a totally privacy-friendly company. We've covered stories about how Apple has disregarded certain toggles in the past. And, you know, the fact that they even presented this idea shows that they are open to violating user privacy. There's a lot of problems with Apple. That's what I'm trying to get at. But we are big fans of like following the facts and and being realistic. And it looks like there's no factual basis for this story. Yeah. And again, like we get called Apple shills, but we also get called Google. We get called shills for everything because we normally just stick to whatever the story is and what we, what evidence we can actually go off of, like Nate was saying. And in this case, like first off the article and the write-up and the research was very loosey-goosey. There was a lot of assumptions made in the research that like, if you really break it down, it's like, oh, well, I guess that could be a lot of things. And sure enough, are you linking the rebuttal paper? I'm linking the rebuttal. Um, you know, I guess I, I'll go ahead and throw in the original article as well. So you just go, you guys can read it, but there really wasn't any research. It was literally like, I hooked it up. Little snitch alerted me to this daemon and I just assumed from there. Yeah. Like that's really what it there was. There was a huge assumption that it has anything to do with CSAM. So the rebuttal actually like goes into it and covers like what this does. By the way, this isn't something new. This whole daemon, demon, however you want to refer to it has been around for like years. So this isn't anything new. It kind of blew up out of nowhere. And this is the evidence that we have right now. Maybe we will find out that Apple has been submitting your photos, but the reality is that's just not what any evidence is showing right now. So if you are concerned about this, there's nothing to be concerned about. And if you don't even want them to do this, you can disable this yourself. And I guess just, I, I will say anyone who like ran away with this story completely like off the walls, like maybe like second guess that source of information, try to stick with sources of information that like are actually looking at the evidence that we have and always like checking and making sure like, oh, is this actually what is happening? Yes, get your sources from multiple people, but also make sure that like you're getting quality sources as well. Yeah, because we have no issue like saying when Apple screws up, we do it all the time on this podcast. And we also have no issue saying when Apple like does good stuff, which we also do a lot on this podcast. So we do that with every company, with every open source project. It's I like to think we're pretty impartial to things. Uh, maybe we're not all the time, but yeah, just advice to throw your way. But. Feel free to read the articles for yourself and decide what you think. All right, we have a long data breach section, so we're going to go quickly through this. First one, a flaw in a Dickshot app exposed the data of millions of Indian students. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. This is the Digital Infrastructure for Knowledge Sharing. This app was critical during COVID remote learning, but the data was left unprotected, and it included names, phone numbers, and email addresses for teachers. And for students, it included full names, partial email addresses, and phone numbers, and school information like what school they attended, courses they enrolled in, and course completion. 
A network of knockoff apparel stores exposed 330,000 customer credit cards. I'm going to quote the article here. Since January 6th, a database containing hundreds of thousands of unencrypted credit card numbers and corresponding cardholders' information was spilling onto the open web. At the time it was pulled offline on Tuesday, the database had about 330,000 credit card numbers, cardholders' names, and full billing addresses, and rising in real time as customers placed new orders. The data contained all the information that a criminal would need to make fraudulent transactions and purchases using a cardholder's information, unquote. So the article says anyone with the IP address of the database could have accessed it. There was no authentication whatsoever. And at least one actor claims to have copied the data and says that they will return it if they are paid a ransom. Several of the victims who were contacted confirmed that the data was accurate. It was their data. And nearly all of the sites, which are listed in the article, were set up in the last few weeks. So looks like this was a uh, very coordinated scam of some kind. GoTo says hackers stole customers' backups and encryption key. So GoTo used to be known as, quote, LogMeIn. That was the name of the service and is actually the company behind LastPass. This dates back to November in the initial LastPass disclosures, and it seems they did disclose that GoTo was affected, but it got very overshadowed by all the LastPass news. We now know that it also affected additional GoTo services, such as backups for central and pro accounts. It included usernames, salted and hashed passwords, uh, multi-factor authentication information, email emails, phone numbers, billing addresses, last four of card numbers, and more. In response, GoTo has migrated accounts to their enhanced identity management platform and forced password resets. The Green Party of Canada has posted sensitive information about voters and members online. This included names, phone numbers, addresses, birth dates, and, quote, other sensitive items, unquote, of thousands of members online via the website. The data was stored in a Google Drive and apparently made public somehow. I guess maybe like a link was posted on this website somewhere. The The article wasn't really clear to me as a, a foreigner, but I, I, I don't know if it was people who were registered Green Party or like people who voted for like who should be the party leader, that kind of stuff. But still, lots of uh, data and very disappointing. A police contractor that promised to track homeless people was hacked. This is a platform called Odin, which we have covered before. They claim they can help track unhoused people via facial recognition for policing purposes, like knowing if they have a history of violence and booking them a slot in an overnight shelter. Attackers have stolen over 15 gigabytes of data and includes images like mugshots and tattoos, social security numbers, names, reports, sex offender registration information, login information, and much more. Headline says, Cyber Criminals Auction Alleged Source Code for League of Legends. League of Legends, for those who don't know, is a wildly popular online game. The title pretty much says it all. Riot hasn't confirmed that this is indeed the source code, but the evidence suggests that it's very likely. This could be particularly concerned. It appears to include the Pac-Man anti-cheat. And for those of you who don't know, a lot of games nowadays come with these like anti-cheat softwares that run even if you plan to never ever play the game online, cough, cough, GTA 5. But the problem is that these anti-cheats run on highly, highly elevated privileges. Like, they're practically rootkits. They go so deep into the kernel. So if this source code turns out to have any sort of vulnerabilities in it or any sort of remote exploits, that could be bad news. Now, for the record, the odds of them finding like a zero click or something like that are really low. So they would probably still have to use standard phishing techniques to get access in the first place. But still, if you're a League of Legends player, be on guard, because over the next few weeks and months, they may find some vulnerabilities, and this could be bad. FanDuels warns of a data breach after customer information was stolen in a vendor hack. This is a fallout from that MailChimp breach. FanDuel is a sports betting site, for those who didn't know that, and it includes names and email addresses. Yandex denies hack, blames source code leak on former employee. 
Someone has posted the Yandex Git sources as a 44.7 gigabyte torrent file that they claim to have stolen while working for the company. This contains data about Yandex search engine and indexing bot, maps, AI assistant, taxi, ad services, mail, cloud storage, market travel, workspaces, cloud, pay, and Metriac analytics services. So yeah, if you are a Yandex user, just be aware that the source code is out there and there may be some exploits found along the way. And our last story, a Dutch cyber criminal obtained virtually all Austrians' personal data, the police says. The suspect was arrested in November and offered data for sale online in May 2020. So it's been a long time. It includes the full names, genders, complete addresses, and date of births on roughly 9 million out of 9.1 million Austrians. With that, we'll move into companies, and we're going to start off with some exciting news about Apple. iOS 16.3 and macOS Ventura 13.2 have added hardware security key support. You have probably heard about this. It's been kind of big news. For those who want to know how to set it up, All Things Secured has a walkthrough video that's really good. It does require two keys, which is good on Apple's end. You should always have a backup. The part that disappoints me is apparently it requires an NFC or a lightning key. There is no way to activate it on web. You either have to have an iPhone with an NFC or a lightning key, or you have to have a Mac. In other news, Mac adopted the rapid security response with this update, which allows you to automatically get urgent security updates. Like it'll download them, install them, everything. Zero clicks required on your end. That is good news from a security perspective. And moving to the Android world, Android 14 is set to block certain outdated applications from being installed. And this is to help reduce the potential for malware. So Android 14 will begin fully blocking the installation of apps that targeted outdated versions of Android. Apps that haven't been updated since those guidelines were updated will also be blocked from installation on new devices. Up until now, this was already the policy, but only for the Play Store. Now it will be expanded to actual APKs. This will be rolled out in phases, first blocking everything with especially old Android devices, then slowly rolling up to 6.0 and beyond. As long as you're not running KitKat, or apps that are supposed to run on KitKat, you should be fine. As long as you're not like way, 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 you're not getting apps that are designed for like a super old version of Android, you should be fine. Also, just so everyone knows, installing older apps will still be possible using a new flag via the command shell. So I'm guessing this will probably be some ADB command that you can run to just allow old apps to be installed. Our next story comes from Facebook, where it says Messenger ramps up testing of default end-to-end encryption. This will be rolled out slowly to random users. I mean, I guess that's really about it. Secret chats rolled out in 2016, and then in January of 2022, they started opt-in end-to-end encryption for group calls or group chats and calls. But now this is going to make end-to-end encryption the default for all chats, and they will be upgrading existing chats as well. They expect to be done rolling it out by the end of 2023. The only question I have is, will this also apply to the desktop? Because that's been one of my big criticisms of secret chats is they only work on mobile devices, which um, total conspiracy theory here. I don't have proof of this, but I think that's because that way Meta can still get a lot of metadata from your phone and uh, pull a lot of like location and stuff like that. And, you know, phones are just hard to anonymize the same way the desktops are. So... Yeah, I'll be interested to know if this is like mobile only stuff or if this also translates over to the desktop, where in theory, a user could have a little bit more privacy. Up next, Home Depot Canada found sharing customer personal data with Meta. 
says Privacy Regulator. So this is an investigation by the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, or the OPC, that found by in participating in Meta's offline conversations program, Home Depot shared the e-receipts that included encoded email addresses and purchase information. They stopped in October of 2022 because of the OPC recommendation to stop until the company is able to implement measures to ensure valid consent by their customers. For me, the takeaway here is just to remember that when you give up information to anyone, you're kind of trusting them to do what you what they want with it. You know, Home Depot can do whatever they want when you give when you create a Home Depot account. And I would even extend this to even using your credit card. If you can try to avoid using your debit card in places, that'd be nice because like that means every place that you go to that you give your credit card number to, like they're now storing that. If there's ever a breach, like that's now public. And so just try to think about trying to minimize the data that you give to everyone out there because you never know when people are running programs like this. We have no research stories this week. Well, we had one, but we decided it was the headline story. So that has already been covered. And therefore, we will move into politics. We're going to start in New York City, where jails want to ban physical mail and then privatize scanning of digital versions. The title really says it all. The article notes that this is actually a nationwide trend. New York City is not the first. This has already been implemented in places like Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Florida, New Mexico, and Texas, in some cases to varying degrees. Personally, I wanted to share this story because of, we've mentioned this before, Cory Doctorow has what he calls the tech adoption curve, which is basically they roll out all this really privacy invasive stuff on people who are less controversial, like immigrants, prisoners, enemies of war, and- um, Students, apparently. <laughs> yeah, students, apparently. And people are less likely to object to them because, you know, they have less rights, allegedly. And therefore, they are able to improve this technology, get people used to it, and then start bringing it over to other areas of life. We saw this, uh, I think, a year or two ago with uh, Baltimore was trying to fly this spy plane 24-7. We see this a lot. So unfortunately, this is something we should be aware of. Up next, New York Police Department is videoing people leaving Drake concerts worries privacy advocates. This is, uh, I, 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 this is the weird, huh? The title does say it all, though. New York Police Department says they're trying to film video for social media posts, but that seems kind of odd. Like, why are they wasting the resources to videotape random people? Why not retweet the news or use their own footage? They also filmed other events recently, like the Apollo Theater. So uh, just very much confusion. So our next story, I think, is a quick update, actually. It says WhatsApp was fined 5.5 million euros by the Irish uh, DPC, which I think is the Data Protection Commission, for GDPR violations. Last time we talked about Meta getting fined by Ireland, we said that there was a decision about WhatsApp coming soon, and I'm pretty sure this is it. The complaint submitted to DPC contended that WhatsApp forced users to accept the changes by making it a condition to continue using the software. Hence, users had to consent to the processing of their personal data just to open the app. That was a quote from the article. The case will probably continue because there were actually three different charges that were brought forward. Two of them were dropped. And one of those that was dropped is also applicable under German law. So now there's a possibility that Germany will pursue the case. And our last political news for the week. In Argentina, getting a new SIM card will now require giving up biometric data. This is a new rule from the National Communications Authority and applies to all mobile carriers. So as of right now, I don't know what the system is, if there's any workarounds for this or anything like that. But this was done as a security measure after several high-profile individuals were SIM swapped. So I guess... Kind of seems like a good cause, but there's probably a million better ways of dealing with this than having to require biometric data, which now opens up a new thing they need to protect. And so are we going to start seeing biometric data leaks in Argentina now because of this? It doesn't seem like the best way to approach this problem, but that's at least my analysis of the situation. 
I also want to point out, I didn't put it in the show notes here, but the article pointed out that SIM swaps account for, I think they said like 0.05% of all the the issues brought up by customers to carriers. Like every issue they've had, it's like SIM swaps are 0.05. So it's like, it seems kind of like, oh, now that this affected somebody important, we're just going to go nuclear. I agree. And it's unnecessary too. We're moving, we're... Uh, Every new device supports eSIM nowadays. They can just transition everything to eSIM, and that already greatly, 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 greatly reduces the chance of any kind of SIM swap attack. While you're looking that up, I also want to point out, um, just to get up on my soapbox here, please stop making more messengers. We don't need encrypted messenger 500 million. We need a voice over IP option for the people in Argentina who now need to tie their personal real identity and biometric data to their phone number. Stop making messengers. Start making things we actually need. We need more voice over IP options for non-American countries. Non-American, non-UK, and non-Canadian, to clarify. Yeah, so um, I guess it's complicated. Theoretically, someone can still SIM swap eSIM, but it's generally harder to do. There's no physical SIM card, and you can't like just claim that you lost a SIM card or it got lost or damaged. Um, uh, okay, that makes and sense. So like, it just makes things a little bit harder. eSIMs also prevent cyber criminals from acquiring another SIM card or re-registering the number in their name as well. There are some nice perks to eSIMs. With that, we'll move into free and open source software. We're going to start off talking about Bitwarden. The headline says Bitwarden responds to encryption design flaw criticism. So apparently Bitwarden is pulling a LastPass and not updating the password iterations for existing users. This actually came to light in 2018, but Bitwarden basically ignored it until the recent LastPass breach, and then they kind of realized like, okay, maybe we should fix this. Maybe this is actually a big deal after all. So recently, a researcher also independently came to the same conclusions. Bitwarden claims that your vault is protected with 200,001 iterations, 100,001 on the client side, and then 100,000 on the server side. In addition to being well below the recommended settings, which I'll talk about in a second, this also means that your vault really only has 100,000 iterations if it was ever stolen LastPass style, because at that point, they don't need to go through the server side. They already have your vault. They just need to go through that. Bitwarden has acknowledged this criticism and is promising to fix it, although they haven't really said exactly what that fix will be or when. They are moving new accounts to a higher iteration. Now, ironically, the person who found this more recent research and posted it, at the time that they published it, the recommended number of iterations was 310,000. And then literally like hours later, that recommendation was bumped up to 600,000. <laughs> so yeah, they they are going to bump everybody up to 600,000, which by the way, I know we mentioned this before on the last pass thing, but for anyone who's joining us, iterations, it's really high level stuff that I don't fully understand. But basically it's just, it's a way of like re-encrypting your encrypted password or like rehashing your hashed password to make it even harder to hack. Hold that thought because I'm going to get to that in a second as well. So again, new accounts will get higher defaults. Old accounts are at the moment not being automatically upgraded. So if you are a Bitwarden user and you want to do that, you have to do it from the web vault. It's in your account settings. It's very not hard to find. It took me like two seconds. There's also rumors that Bitwarden is planning to migrate over to Argon2, which again is one of those things that I don't understand. It goes above my head. But I hear a lot of people saying that it's not only going to fix this issue, but it's going to fix a few other issues. So if they do that, that should be a win from what I hear. So a quick nitpick that I have to point out. When this story broke, a lot of people were pointing out that the difference between 300,000 and 600,000 iterations is less than two bits of entropy. If that's true, I have absolutely no idea why everyone made a big deal out of this when LastPass was doing it, but now we're making excuses for Bitwarden. It feels very hypocritical. That said, everyone from like the researchers who found this to Bitwarden themselves, everybody agrees the best defense is just to have a strong master passphrase. That'll matter, matter so much more. A good master passphrase is, God, what, like 150 bits of entropy or something like that? 
just have a good master passphrase and maybe consider an offline password manager. Like they're not right for everybody. You have to make sure you're keeping good backups. You have to make sure you're really organized. But if you have those skills, you keep good backups and you're really organized. An offline password manager is definitely the way to go, in my opinion. Big fan of KeePass, and I will add some context here. A reason why people were really upset about LastPass, which does differentiate LastPass and Bitwarden. Old LastPass users, people who have been with LastPass for the last, like, 10-plus years, literally had iterations of a 500. They never upgraded. Okay, the entropy difference might be a little bit bigger. Yeah, 500. (laughs) That's That's, fair. That's actually, like, a quoted thing that a lot of people had. They had to manually upgrade that. Other people had 5,000. I'm going through a thread right now of people reporting I remember 5,000. But some people literally had 500, and they allowed that to happen. Just to, like, give a little bit context there. But yeah, like, Bitwarden, this definitely is a hit, I think, to, like, trust and reputation. It's nice that they're fixing all this, but I still wish that this was never an issue in the first place. We're going to go into the Q&A section now, and just for context, so... Now that we lowered the entry point into the Q&As, we're now getting a lot more questions because of the lowered price. So just going forward, so everyone knows this is actually there in the Q&A, we're not guaranteed to look at every question every week. It depends on time and how much we can fit. So we'll kind of pick and choose the ones we like. And you can always repost your questions the following week if there's less questions that week as well. So let's go ahead and dive into it. The first one is from Skult. Now that it's tax season in the United States, what are your recommendations for companies to use for filing taxes that would keep your information private and secure? Very difficult question. It's kind of an inherently not private thing to do, like this is tied to you. So really the best thing that I would say personally here is try to find, if you do taxes yourself, I'm not too familiar with services to use. I don't do my own taxes. I have like an accountant that I can trust. Everything for taxes has like its own phone number and its own email and its own mailing address. So you can kind of separate things from yourself a little bit there, but ultimately it is kind of a lot of personal information to give to the government. So it's really more about aliasing when you can, where it's legal. I don't know if you have anything else to add. I don't think there's much to add here. No, I I think that's really good advice just in general. Um, Like you said, like separate phone number, separate email. In a perfect world, the best way to go is to get an accountant who's also a lawyer because then you're covered. I mean, you have to state this up front, but then you're covered under client, uh, what is it? lawyer client privilege or whatever, Mm -hmm. which would require like a a pretty high standard for a warrant to get that information that wouldn't really protect you from data breaches. That's a whole different thing. Like you would have to make sure and vet your account. Like, Hey, what are your security practices? How are you protecting my data? How long are the passwords you're using? Are you using two factors? Stuff like that. If your tax situation is simple, you can check out the IRS free file. If you just search that, you should find it pretty easy. There are a few companies who work directly with the IRS to offer free federal income tax And um, it's just for basic stuff, you know, like a 1040 and stuff like that. It's just like any of these other services out there that are paid, but it's free. Yeah, I think just compartmentalizing is probably because at that point, if they get in and steal the data, it's all going to be data that you can't really fake anyways, like your social, your date of birth, your real name, how much money you made, things that you probably shouldn't lie on. Our next question comes from AB says, question for Nathan. I believe you mentioned at one point you were former military. Which branch did you serve in? What did you enjoy most and least? And what made you decide to leave? No military experience here. Just curious. So first of all, I'm not going to say what branch I served in just for personal um, OPSEC reasons. For context, because I'm about to really piss off some of the veterans here. I was honorably discharged. I served my time and got out. I had fulfilled my contract. So yeah, all that to say, I'm not just some like jaded person who is blaming all of my screw-ups on the military. That said, what did I enjoy the most? I have some fun stories to tell now. What did I enjoy the least? Everything. Most of the higher-ups, in my opinion, are completely out of touch with reality. One of my higher-ups one time went out in town, bought his own printer to use at work, and then before leaving for a meeting, told me to install it. Despite the fact that I don't have the admin passwords, I'm not a hacker, I never was. Just 
you know, oh, this isn't my problem. You do it. Like I'm just supposed to magically pull the passwords out of thin air. I did not enjoy that. If you are, okay, content warning this next part. If you're a female, you're screwed no matter what. When you show up to a unit, every guy will try to sleep with you. If you don't put out, you're a prude. If you do put out, you're a slut. They won't take you seriously if you have any sort of sexual assault experience and try to report it, which I'm pretty sure that rate is extremely high in the military. It's just everything. There's toxic masculinity is just rampant. A lot of these people are just pissing Red Bull and listening to Five Finger Death Punch all the time. Like it's just it's such a toxic environment where if you're not super macho and manly all the time, you don't fit in. End of story. I did not enjoy it. I would not recommend it. And that's why I left. Uh, What made you decide to leave? I realized this is not for me. I have an, an, an IQ that's above room temperature and I can actually do something with my life. So I left and did something with my life. And fun fact, when I left, for real, one of my staff sergeants straight up told me, you'll be living under a bridge in a week. He straight up said that to my face. He's like, you'll be living out of your car in a week. Here I am making really good money, you know, with my own website and communities and podcasts. And, well, you know, we co-host the podcast, but yeah, um, screw you, bud. Here I am. Yeah, no, I, I did not enjoy it. I would not do it again. I would not recommend anybody do it. I will say if you're going to not listen to me and do it anyways, at least go into the reserves because then if you end up hating it, you only have to show up once a month. And if you end up liking it, all that time in reserve counts towards your time in service. So you still get paid as if you were in for four years. You still get eligible, uh, like promotions as if you were in for four years. But that was my military experience. It was not fun. I wouldn't do it again. Pretty much the only good side is now I have extremely cheap medical no matter what. Oh, and my college was paid for. Good stuff. Good stuff. (laughs) Next question is from Alan. It's for both of us. I'll start. It's what would you say is the hardest part of managing, running, creating content on your respective blogs or videos? How do you manage, address these challenges? There's a lot of challenges from different angles. Like it's hard to manage people. It's hard to manage my team. It's hard to manage myself. I have kind of live my own life over here with my own schedule, which is awesome and gives me full autonomy, but I have to stay on top of things as well, which is really hard to do sometimes when you don't have external influences that require you to be there on days that you don't want to be there. But I'd say probably the biggest challenge I consistently deal with is striking the balance between the whole balance of like clickbait and uh, legit bait and just factual. I feel like a lot of privacy content creators, and this is just a content creator problem in general, not even specific to the privacy world, really lean on extreme takes to get their points across and get people to click. And yeah, it gets people to click and these videos go viral. And I always tell my team, over at Techler, like, I'm pretty sure that we could hit a million subscribers if we really wanted to. But the way we would do that would be by like, leaning into every extreme take that we could possibly do. And that is not the community, nor the channel, nor the content that we're trying to make. We're trying to make very evidence-based content that like really helps people. That really gives them like what they can realistically do. We're not trying to fear monger. We're not trying to like, take people away from the actual like doable things. But that also means like our really like our very informational videos videos don't perform that well. So it's really hard to like combine the two concepts of like still trying to like get our voice out there and like spread privacy to the masses, but also do it in a way where everything is still like grounded and and evidence grounded in reason. It's a big struggle back here. And it's something we're always trying to find the right balance of it's hard to do it. Well, it's probably my biggest challenge. For me, my biggest challenge is the fact that I don't do this full time. I have a day job that I I love. I'm very happy with my day job and I like all my coworkers and everything, but it's a very physically demanding job. Like I'm never in front of my computer. That's the biggest challenge for me is just making time to do my job and be fully present there, do work here and make sure it's still quality and, and, you know, good 
And then also, you know, I have a wife, I have friends, I have, I'm an introvert. I want to do me things. I have shows I want to watch. I have video games I want to play. I have things I want to do for me. And just uh, time is the biggest thing I struggle with. How do I manage these challenges? What I'm trying to do for 2023 is just to be real better about my time management, about cutting off distractions, um, you know, making sure I close Signal and Matrix and Discord and stuff when I'm trying to do work. Try, just trying to stay focused is the big thing for me. I think if I really cut off distractions a lot better, I think that'll reclaim a lot of my free time. And automation's a big thing for me. You know, how can I streamline, filter out things I don't care about, streamline my processes, stuff like that. It's all the workflow is really the hardest part for me personally. And our final question comes from Freddie Mercury, a regular, who says, in terms of digital OPSEC, any advice for international traveling, such as what to do with your devices, what not to carry, what to look out for to safeguard, etc." I think we have answered a similar question to this before. This is a really complicated question because if you screw it up, you're probably going to miss your flight because the TSA is going to want to ask you some questions. For digital stuff, I would just say personally, I've never had the TSA try to search any of my phones or anything like that. I've even gone through security with multiple phones. I've literally flown home with like six phones, two hard drives, two or three laptops, and nobody's ever said anything. But that was domestic flight, for example, for the record. I would say know your your rights. Like, can they force you to unlock the device? Are they allowed to do that? It varies from place to place. Having good encryption, if you're really concerned about it, the best option is always just to like reset your device. Maybe put a backup somewhere in the cloud and memorize the passphrase for that. And then when you get there where you're going, go ahead and pull that back up. I guess it just depends on what kind of threat models you might face and knowing your rights and what your options are and deciding what you think is the best one. This is a very multi-layered problem. It really depends on who you are as well and where you're going. And the, there's a ton of things here. I will say when you travel, like it's it's challenging to do things well when you travel. And I think I I think we talked about this in the past, actually, of like with privacy and security, it's okay when you travel to, it's kind of like when you travel, you, you don't eat your normal diet. Like you kind of have to let go of your diet a little bit. You have to let go of certain things when you go travel because you're not in your familiar territory on your routine. So if you're completely focused on your OPSEC when you're traveling, like to the core, that now becomes like your full-time job when you're traveling and you can't really travel. So I would say like really doing a lot of prep in advance so that you can minimize the time that you're spending there doing things is really nice. So you might have to spend more money to make that happen. So for example, if you go to Europe, you can just get like a SIM card when you get there. And that's now your phone number when you're there and you can scrap it when you're done. And that's a way to just very easily kind of protect your phone number and your cell plan. Maybe you can even like pull out your SIM card before you leave or something like that. To avoid any airline stuff, you can like upload everything to the cloud and then resync it to your device and wipe your devices before you go. But that's a pretty extreme threat model that I don't think most people have to worry about. It's a multi-layered issue that we could talk about for a long time but i would say just try to prep in advance before you go because when you're there it's going to be really hard to like manage everything so that's it for this week apple is probably not checking your photos in the finder but they did add security keys which is great league of legends unfortunately had some source code leaked argentina is unfortunately requiring biometrics for sim cards and bitwarden will hopefully be increasing user security soon we'll just have to wait and see how they do that and how soon our promo segment, again, we want to remind you guys that we have Patreon, LibrePay, and Monero. Patreon, you get perks, like you can ask a question, you get a longer version of this video that has more of our back and forth and our discussions. LibrePay, there are no perks, but it is more private than Patreon in supporting us. And Monero is, of course, the most anonymous and private option available. We don't see anything about you other than what you sent to us. And on that topic, we are teaming up with the upcoming Monerotopia conference to offer you guys 10% off a ticket. So again, that is May 5th through 7th of this year, 6 and 7 are full 
whole days. The fifth is a welcome party in the evening. It'll be in Mexico City, and there's going to be a lot of developers, contributors, tech projects, all kinds of cool stuff going on there. General admission tickets are $99 for all three days. VIP tickets are $199 unless you use our code, which again is no surveillance one. That's the number one, all lowercase, and you'll get 10% off that. I will be there. Henry will not, but he'll be there in spirit. Thank you so much for listening to Surveillance Report. The final thing we want to ask of you, as always, is to share the podcast around. Make sure that you are subscribed to hear any updates in the future. Give us a rating if you're listening from a platform where that's an option. We are trying to reach as many people as possible with the message of privacy, and you can help us do that. So thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week.